Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, July 20th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We got news yesterday that Senator John McCain has brain cancer said to be aggressive and resistant to treatment. McCain, as I'm sure you're hearing in news reports and from his fellow senators, was a hero, a patriot, and a decent, decent man. And I say a decent man. I'm thinking of this one exchange he had with a voter during the 2008 election. I can't trust Obama. I, I have read about him, and he's not, he's not, he's a, um, he's an Arab. He is not. No? No, man. No, man. No, man. He's a, he's a, he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on, on fundamental issues, and that's what this campaign is all about. He's not. Thank you. McCain could have laughed it off or sloughed it off or changed the subject, but his character refused to let it go. That was a statement against self-interest he made on the campaign trail. We know now that had he fed that sentiment, it could have helped him. It was certainly out there. The public, the Republican public, was willing to go to where that woman went. I'm not naive. I know David Foster Wallace wrote eloquently, about McCain turning his decency into a kind of brand, but that's okay. Donald Trump said anyone would have taken the meeting that his son took with the Russians. Anyone would have done what it takes to do to hurt an opponent. Uh, no, that's not true. We just played an example right there. Here's another one. But I think the secretary is right. And that is that the American people are sick and tired of hearing about your damn emails. Thank you. Me too. Or, as we've heard of late Gore campaign officials who were leaked Bush debate prep, they turned it right over to the FBI. So there are occasionally actions against self-interest for a greater cause on the campaign trail, even during the tumble of a presidential campaign. Now, as a keen listener, you probably noted that everyone I listed lost. So I was trying to think of some examples of decency against self-interest that really did hurt a candidate. Uh, Heard a cause in becoming president. Couldn't even really think of one. Even Barack Obama, surely a decent man. He favored decent policies. You could argue that was enough. But I can't think of a specific utterance where he did what McCain did. Took himself down or hurt his chances a little bit by being decent in a campaign context. He didn't do anything indecent, but he didn't say, no, you're wrong. Here is why your assumptions that could help me should not be entertained. I don't know. These days, 
maybe you're thinking that indecency is unpresidential or that it's modern day presidential. On the show today, Donald Trump, the aforementioned Mr. Trump, gives an interview to the New York Times, setting off some warning bells and for us, cannon shots. But first, Comic legend Mike Sachs is here with a novelization of a trucker flick from the 1970s that you might not believe. Misbehaving primates, delivering beer to Jimmy Carter, mustaches. It's Smokey and the Bandit meets Cannibal Run with a dash of Akira Kurosawa's Ran. I might have made some of that up. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. So if you're old enough like me, or if you had an older brother who just delighted to the tales of Stinker, that great mustachioed Southerner who would just haul ass throughout the South... You highly anticipated the 40th anniversary of the original publication of the novelization of the classic film Stinker Let's Loose. Now, of course, this was originally written by James Taylor Johnston, but joining me now is Mike Sachs, who... um you might know he's been a past guest of The Gist. He's a, uh, a, a humorist and sort of, uh, especially as coming to the fore here, uh, an historian of humor and I think things from the 70s. Hello, Mike. How are you? Very well. Thank and, you. And just take me through. So you have kind of found these a lot of these old novelizations and you're bringing them back now? Yeah, in... I read these novelizations. Novelizations are movie tie-ins, basically a okay. book written off the script that would come out shortly after a movie came out if it was successful. And I love novelizations, have a big collection. And one of those that I always wanted to see that I vaguely remembered as a kid, it was actually the first movie I saw in the theater in Virginia Beach was Stinker Let's Loose, which is one of those movies that I felt I dreamed. I didn't really know if it actually existed or not. Right. So I, I would look back into the archive. Yeah, you have this vague, hazy recollection of a scene or a character, and then it gets confused. Like there's the, the chimp character. And exactly. then you probably think of every which way but lose and the other Clint Eastwood. And you're like, was that Clint Eastwood? And right, I was conflating yeah. the different right, CB right. movies. You know, every which way, but Luce had an orangutan. This one had a chimp who was wild, feral, and estrus, and who would nourish off people's faces. Like, 
did I did this actually exist or not, or was it just something that my febrile five year old mind came up with? It actually did exist. It's impossible to find on VHS, even on Beta. Uh, it does exist on some bootleg versions. But I, I tracked down the novelization. James Taylor Johnston, the author, is has passed away. He was an author of numerous novelizations, and uh, he he did this one in '76. Came out in '77. And it wasn't easy to find. I did find it. I did acquire the rights to it. And yeah. I'm putting it out as is. So every mistake in there, every bizarre moment is in there as is. And I don't know that it plays well with 2017 sensitivities, shall we say. It might not. But as I put in the foreword, it's sort of refreshing, this, this Dixie Fried uh, trucker and his and his pals. I mean, these aren't, um, these aren't PC people. It's a mm. bit misogynist. It's racist, xenophobic, anti-Semitic, homophobic. You know, go down the list. But they're likable in a way, and it does capture a time. Uh, they're authentic, I think, is what you would say. It's very authentic. I mean, the original movie was very authentic to the CB craze, which was out to the mid to late 70s, when everyone, even your aunt, I remember my aunt had a CB, and her uh, call name was Honey Bear. Honey Bear. So, I mean, it was it's very authentic to that time. It was a simpler time, not necessarily a better time, but it was almost, it's, it's almost read to me like a sci-fi. It, was, it almost took place on another planet, this mm-hmm. type of story. Now, I remember the movie. I wasn't drawn to movies like this or i put maybe Smokey and the Bandit or all the Smokey movies generally in the genre. Um, I do remember them being on television, but not on cable. I don't think I had cable at that point. So what happened? Did they exist? Was it the sort of thing where they would get a uh, contract with uh, a television station and play a, a rough a rough cut, a boulderized, edited form. Right, it's pretty risque. They were always. I mean, this was meant for drive-ins, and it, this is a G movie. But if you read it now, <laughs> it was. Yeah. It, oh wow. It, it reads like an R movie. So, but these would sometimes play locally on local channels that it would get their rights. Gee. But the, the problem with Stinker Let's Loose is there was problems with the rights, and the Rough Rider Productions, which put put it out, which was the production company, they put out a few of these type of films. They went out of business, and then it was purchased by someone in Asia, and then they were impossible to find. So. It, the movie itself is practically impossible to find, but you can see uh, when certain people, some famous people mention this movie, there are big influences on them. Kurt Cobain said that this was a huge influence on him. You could hear it on some of the early. There are references albums, yeah. to Stinker Let's Loose in yeah. some of the lyrics if you look back on it. On the page, there are mistakes and there are maybe examples of prose that aren't great, but you know, the, whatever the literary version of the camera is always in focus, that is true. But you're saying if you were to watch this actually on the screen, it would barely seem competent? It would barely seem competent, but because it's happening before your eyes, unlike the book where you can see every mistake. I mean, in the book, I, I printed mistakes like instead of yoga practitioners, yogurt practitioners. Yeah. So things like... And instead of Indian yoga, there was... Indiana in, yoga. Indiana yoga. Right. So yeah. just bizarre, like, you yeah. know, um, dingoes on the on the outback of Austria. You know, strange yeah. things like that. Also... It's uh, almost they were put there to make people laugh. But I think James Taylor Johnston, actually, I know this, he was a writer who was just a meat and potatoes writer. He was not out there to write for New Yorker. So he would make money writing off these scripts. I don't think he'd put, a, put put them in there on purpose to entertain. But when you do read the book, it's almost like bloopers you would see in a movie. Now, the one thing I didn't know or realize or maybe forgotten. So this wasn't like a movie like Fletch, which actually came from a book. Maybe people don't realize this was not books first. These were novelizations made after the movies. That's right. The scripts were written first. And if you look at the um, those who were responsible, there's about five people responsible for the yeah. script. And someone actually created the character of Stinker, who had the rights to the Stinker. Uh, so it, it, a lot of minds went into this. Now, I'm not saying they were good minds or strong or brilliant minds, but a lot of minds went into non-adult. this. non-adult. Yeah. Not adult, yeah. right. 
So a, a lot of effort went into this movie, and I don't think it was made to be bad, but it's one of those movies that, because it wasn't made to be bad, it's just fascinating to watch, and it's really like stuck in amber. It's of its time, and, it, and it's very much of that uh, Jimmy Carter pre-Reagan era. Do you know if it made money for Elliot Smith and the Rough Rider Company? You know, it did, but it was so under wraps. Like you, you talk about the mob. Everything was um, underground. Everything was laundered. So I think he did. He later died in mysterious circumstances, and they think it was the mob who went after him for the money. It was like a porn film in the sense that there was a lot of money out there, but only the mob saw it, supposedly, allegedly. And the Rough Rider Company, was it a little like Roger Corman? I mean, people just... Uh, no, it was, no, it was out of his basement, basically. Oh, it was okay. just this one guy, Elliot Smith, and he named it Rough Rider, not even getting the allusion to the sex magazines and all that other things. Yeah, I didn't. That went over my head, too. Um, I've, I've seen belt buckles and printed t-shirts. Is this the source for the phrase... Uh, wet in the sluice, dry in the goose? Or it is. Was he, oh, it now, there's is, a yeah. lot of phrases that came yeah. out of this movie that people don't know. And also the big phrase was stinker don't reverse, which mm. is, is in the plot where stinker, the main guy, refuses to reverse and it later comes up during a car race. What does he do when in the car can only go in reverse? Okay, so let's play. We have, like I said, I think we found, I don't even know if this was YouTube, Chris. Which service was this? Well, this was some... Some YouTube-esque uh, clip service. And we have, I guess, what the most memorable scene from the movie is. Why don't you set it up? The most memorable memorable scene of the movie is at the end at the White House in which Jimmy Carter, who you never see, is in a limousine. And, and since I'm only reading the novel, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but did the actor they cast evoke Carter in any way? They probably shot it from the back and that whole thing. Exactly. They yeah. shot it through a window through the back. And he put on a white wig and mm-hmm. he spoke in a Plains, Georgia accent. But when you look at it now, you can see that he's just wearing a tank top, which a president would never do. So in the very last, the whole purpose of the book, uh, Stinker's goal is to deliver a six pack of Schlitz to the president of the United States. You never really find out why, but he has to do it. No. It's sort of a MacGuffin or maybe just an oversight in script writing. I don't you know? I think it is an oversight, quite <laughs> yeah. frankly. So at the very end, the um, the truckers burst on through the White House gates and uh, drive up to the limo. Now, meanwhile, Stinker and the rest of the gang are dropping in in a hot air balloon. And um, an elephant is also showing up. Earlier in the book, Rascal rode an elephant through a World War II parade. So I think this is uh, the setup for this scene. All right, let's hear. Yeah, Mike, I'm sorry. There's actually no clip, it turns out. Wow. And why is that, Chris? Well, I emailed Mr. Sachs and he sent me a note back saying like, hey, sorry, there's no clip. Can't uh, can't help you. Mike, why why couldn't we find the clip? Uh, well, it's hard to find. And uh, um, I mentioned this to your producer that mm-hmm. it doesn't even exist, exist bootleg off a of bootleg, which is why I was surprised when you had me set it up. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know that you found the clip. Mike, I don't have a clip. And the reason I don't have a clip is there is no clip and there is no movie. And this is all a ruse. There is a book. It's in front of me. It's very funny. What? Stinker lets me. Yes, I know. Could we drop? Could we drop the artifice? <laughs> How? I love this idea. This, to me, is one of the few original ideas. Did you read these novelizations? I love these novelizations. Yeah. So let me just say that this is a made-up movie that I did, but it's, it's written as a pure novelization. I'm a huge fan of novelizations. I have about 50 <laughs> of them, including Herbie the Love Bug, yeah. which you mentioned. Uh, a Fish of Safe Pittsburgh is another one that I loved. Which and you and it's funny in the in the intro. This is how really to pull a scam. You reference the Fish that Saved Pittsburgh. You reference that Sidney po- Poitier movie that right. I looked up, and those both exist. Those both exist. Sandwich in between those real things that you wouldn't think exist is this movie. Well, exactly. Yeah. The, the Sidney Poitier movie was a real movie I saw as a kid. I never forgot this one scene, which is uh, astonishing. So I pretended that this was a this was another movie that I saw down in Virginia Beach uh, as a kid and never forgot. But really, it, it's a 
uh, a take on this type of movie, which really does seem like sci-fi at this point, doesn't it? I mean, it, it yeah. comes from a world that doesn't exist yeah. anymore. Wasn't there one just about a beer, just about? Well, that was Smokey. They had to deliver yeah. um, a, a shipment <laughs> yes. across state lines, George. I mean, it, the plots are so ridiculous, it doesn't even matter. But that's one of the reasons I love these movies is just pure and free. And it's almost like they were surveillance films. Like they <laughs> Dom DeLuise wasn't even aware he was being shot. No, like. and they, he would have acted like that otherwise. But how could Dom DeLuise be in these movies? And then they would have these bloopers at the end, like you're watching a home movie or something. These are bloopers you saw in the theater. When did you ever see? This wasn't a director's cut. Yeah. When you wrote, so there are a couple of different jokes here, and we talked about one. It's written by a bad writer. Right. But you can only take that so far. It can't be so bad that the joke, you can't ruin your own jokes. That's so right. How'd you, how'd you do that? Well, how'd you walk that line? The margin of error is very, very slight because when you parody or satirize something bad, be it a legal document, something very dry or something very bad, like a 1970s novelization, you want it to be bad, but bad in a good way. Mm-hmm. So I thought I would push out this book in two, three weeks. It took six months of writing very specifically <laughs> bad prose. <laughs> Until I hit that certain angle. But yeah, that is true. I mean, I didn't want it to be bad. I did want it to be actually be read, not just looked at for the fake movie stills or the fake advertisement for other novelizations in the back of it. Yeah, it's it's a piece of art, but also on a sentence by sentence level, it's You said piece of art. Yeah, piece of art. Okay. Of art. See, it's funny because when we think about a different time, we say different time. We usually mean sensitivities. We wouldn't say things then that we do now, but we understand maybe why it was said then. And maybe it was just that we didn't know better or that we were worse people or weren't educated. But then back, and it's not the 1470s, it's the 1970s. There just seemed to be fundamental 180 degree differences about human nature and just the attitude towards like grooming facial hair and disgustingness was totally different. You would think that would be an innate human thing. But no, I remember like the more disgusting a leading man was, the cooler that dude was. Absolutely. I mean, they became more heroic the more horrendous they looked, right? The looser they looked. Yeah. Right. I mean, it was was a totally (laughs) different time where guys could walk around with ungroomed mustaches and be seen on huge drive-in screens and be looked at as sex objects. Like, would that happen now? It would not happen now. But was it legit? Was it just thrust at them that Burt Reynolds was a good-looking man? Well, I think it was legit in the sense that, I mean, people would have him up uh, on, you know, women would have him up on posters on their wall. I mean, he was looked at as being a good-looking guy who just happened to have a big old mustache. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just... It seems like we didn't get the women as wrong. Like, Farrah Fawcett would have had to have a different haircut and maybe a different kind of uh, bathing suit than that one that was on every kid's wall but she's a beautiful woman right i don't know that well, good looking men of the era uh, translate well that's just it i mean like why would dom deluise be in it even for a comic effect i mean he, he was a big bloated what was he but that's what i like too about those roles is like he would make fun of himself being fat you can't do that these days you right know? you know stinker looked at himself as being a hero he hated uh anyone who hated anyone else he hated uh, hatred, uh, and he hated that more than anything else in the world, except blacks. Yeah, you know. So this is a guy who is a horrible person, and yet looks at, at himself as being some sort of road warrior, heroic, you know, Greek god of the road. And in in essence, all these people are just really low rent, horrible people who make a living delivering six pack of Schlitz yeah. across state lines, or as I call it, real Americans, forgotten Americans, <laughs> not so forgotten yeah. these days. Um, did you have to actually get in character to write? No, uh, it was 
you know, the character that I did is just as a bad writer, it came very easily. <laughs> it really did. You know, it's so fun to write. And, and it was actually it's interesting to use the word character because I did feel like a character. I felt like I was playing a role uh, as me as a, um, a middle aged writer in the 70s, making a living, living in a one bedroom condo in L.A., writing uh, novelizations, books to these mediocre scripts. And trying to do well, you know, trying to make it lyrical, trying to put it in his own um, artistic uh, edges, but failing miserably because the the subject matter is so horrendous. You know, John Updike couldn't make this book readable. Um, what about the marketing of Stinker Let's Loose? I mean, as as what I'm as nothing. Yeah, what are you doing? No. <laughs> The there's, thing, there's the gist, and you know, we'll see where it goes from there. I was hoping for um, da- down on the street word of mouth. Quite frankly, <laughs> I mean, where do you where do you talk about this? I have no idea. Most people don't get it. Most people are confused. My <laughs> agent wouldn't have gotten it. No publisher would have put this out. I put this out myself. Um, I, you know, my friends who write comedy are like it, and they're passing it around. That's the deal. That's my dream is hope. that is that someone buys the rights to this and makes it into an actual movie. Retro makes it, yeah. You know, Mike Sachs is the man who uh, breathed into being, who concocted not With just my foul breath. Yes, not just Stinker, but the whole world around Stinker. It is the 40th anniversary of the original publication of Stinker Let's Loose, novelization by James Taylor Johnston. And uh, Mike Sachs had something to do with it, as you've heard. I hope and Davis, sure. Davis Adres blurbed it. it. It's the only time a negative blurb has been on the back of a book. <laughs> Thank you, David, for that. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. And now the spiel. Donald Trump gave an interview to the New York Times. And the big takeaway is that he has a regret. It was such a clear look into his psyche. Donald Trump has not accomplished much of anything legislatively. And he's bungled his ban on travelers from seven very, very, very dangerous countries that have never attacked us. But he does have a couple accomplishments. And most of these are either EPA regulations that he rolled back or what's been accomplished in the Justice Department. So for him to say that he regrets appointing Jeff Sessions, that he wishes he had takebacks on the Sessions appointment, what he's really saying is, I don't care about accomplishments at all. I just want to do what's easier for me. I do not want questions. I do not want complications. Maybe if you want to bend over backwards, you could say, well, maybe he's arguing that uh, the presence of Robert Mueller is getting in the way of his agenda. But what Sessions is accomplishing, you or me might not like it, but what he's actually accomplishing, that is Trump's stated agenda. Marijuana prosecutions, civil forfeitures, harsher sentences, immigration enforcement and interpretation. That's almost all of what Donald Trump has accomplished. That's almost the whole list. And now you're saying that you wish Sessions weren't there. Sessions was asked about this. You know, the question was raised. Maybe you should resign. He said, quote, we love this job. We love this department. And I plan to continue to do so as long as that is appropriate. 
Look at it from his point of view. He's not particularly loyal to Trump. He was the first senator to jump on board, but didn't love Trump. He definitely doesn't care about liberals. He's a nationalist. He's the most Steve Bannon-esque of all the senators. And what's going on now actually burnishes his credentials among his people. His people think of Trump as vulgar and unchurched. So these are the people that Sessions cares about. And so they can look at Trump rebuking Sessions as kind of a heroic action. He could say, see what I have to put up with? But we are getting our policy across. Elsewhere in the interview, Trump said this. We actually, it was very interesting, we talked about adoption. Mm-hmm. You did. Russian adoption. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've always found that interesting. Demonstrating the inverse proportion to voicing the words interesting and actually being interesting. Adoption, a fig leaf, a smokescreen. On Morning Joe today, Morning Joe called it a lie. Donald Trump stumbles back into another lie. It wasn't a lie. It's not a lie. You've got to understand what this means. Yes, the meeting between Don Trump and the Russians went down because Donald Trump Jr. was promised some damaging information on Hillary. That was the promise. And I guess he says it never materialized. But I believe they did talk about adoptions. I've said this before, because what adoptions are was the give. That's what the Russians would give. They give America back adoptions. But what was the ask? That's the important part. The ask was the Magnitsky Act. Two days ago, Bill Browder was on the Trump cast. He's the businessman who championed, pushed through, really invented the Magnitsky Act. Sergei Magnitsky was a Russian investigator. He worked for Browder. Browder wound up getting ripped off by the Russian government. This is what they do. They just seized assets illegally. And Magnitsky proved it, and they essentially killed him for it. The government, they're a kleptocracy. Putin's a kleptocrat, but they caught him. And the U.S. government and other governments around the world have enacted a Magnitsky Act, and Putin can't take it. Here's Bill Browder. Vladimir Putin has made it his single largest foreign policy a priority to get rid of the Magnitsky Act. And um, he has devoted, through various different cutouts and channels, huge resources um, to get rid of it. Browder went on to explain why it's so important to Putin. Because Putin has um, amassed an enormous fortune over the 17 years that he's been at the top of the heap in Russia. And the Magnitsky Act, very specifically, would target him. If Western governments have a way into some of his fortunes, they might have a way all the way in. This is Putin's retirement when he steps down, if he steps down. He doesn't want to be a hermit, never able to leave his borders. He wants to be able to freely move and enjoy his wealth. And the Magnitsky Act will get in his way. I love the Magnitsky Act. Seems to be working very well. Government doing its job, getting Putin very worked up. One last thing in this interview. But just Donald Trump jumping around from topic to topic, you could sort of see little pieces of synapse firing, but not quite connecting to the next tendril. He just misunderstands world history and a proper noun will lead to the next topic, might remind him of the old topic or the thing that he's not supposed to be talking about. Here, here he starts talking about when he was invited to go to Paris by Macron and he says, yeah, it was beautiful. We toured the museum. We went to Napoleon's tomb. All right, I've been a little bit criticized for my Trump impersonation. I'll give it a rest here, but I need some accompaniment. So here helping me is Tchaikovsky, a Russian. Not a lot of people know that. As Donald Trump gives a Napoleonic history of events that transpired around 1812. 
Well, Napoleon finished a little bit bad, but I asked that. So I asked the president, so what about Napoleon? He said, no, no, no. What he did was incredible. He designed Paris, the street grid, the way they work, you know, the spokes. He did so many things even beyond. And his one problem is he didn't go to Russia that night because he had extracurricular activities and they froze to death. How many times has Russia been saved by the weather? Garbled, unintelligible. Yeah, we know. Trump, continuing, same thing happened to Hitler. Not for that reason, though. Hitler wanted to consolidate. He was all set to walk in, but he wanted to consolidate. And it went and dropped to 35 degrees below zero, and that was the end of that army. But the Russians have great fighters in the cold. They use the cold to their advantage. I mean, they've won five wars where the armies that went against them froze to death. It's pretty amazing. So we're having a good time. The economy is doing good. That's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube has got his bubblegum machine on and he's taking pictures. Just producer Mary Wilson sees some gator guts in the granny lane. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, advises, drop the hammer, but don't feed the bears. The gist, wrap it up and take it back. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening.